Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Hey, Patrick, how's your German? Uh, Nine, nine. My German's very poor. I can order a beer, I can ask the bathroom, and I might be able to say guten tag at the appropriate time. So you could go into a bar in Munich and say, Ein Bier bitte, Dankeschön, Fräulein, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, let me ask you, would you do that in 1917 in Chicago? Uh, would you walk into a bar and be like, Ein Bier bitte? Well, honestly, I might if there were a German bartender because a big piece of Chicago was very German-centric. But in the wrong tavern or saloon, that could be uh, that could probably get you beat up. You're right. If you were in the wrong town, if you were in the wrong part of the city and you walked in speaking German, you would be in trouble. Right. That would have been very unpatriotic. Absolutely. Like if you went into the fictional Peter Finley Dunn's tavern of Mr. Dooley. Ah, the Irish bartender. Yes. Fictional Irish bartender. On Archie Avenue. That's right. Shorthand for Archer Avenue, I'm assuming, on the near south side, <laughs> kind of Bridgeport-ish That's right. area. He was a favorite of people like Theodore Roosevelt and, and others. We learned that, Patrick, in our interview with Bill Savage. In episode 25, A Book and a Beer, George Aid in the Old Time Saloon. And speaking of Bill Savage, we still need to catch up with him for a beer sometime soon. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of not have tolerated the German reference. Right. And Joe Gostaitis talks about that in his wonderful book, Chicago Transform, where in the long hands, your politics could put you in prison. Or worse, as we get into later in the episode. Yeah, right, right. It's interesting looking at this 100 years plus. In 1917, it was no laughing matter. Right. Well, on that sober note, let's start our interview. Yes. Chris, we're here with Joe Gostaitis and want to talk a little bit about the effects of World War I in Chicago history. And we should mention that Joe has written this fantastic book, Chicago Transformed, World War I and the Windy City. I'm holding up the cover here. And it's a, really a great book, Joe. And, and what I really like about it is you have little vignettes throughout the book on people, biographies. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, because how do you condense a whole epoch into a book? And you bring out these interesting characters that I didn't even think about in terms of World War One. Yeah. For example, just to throw this out there, I always thought jazz in Chicago was like the 1920s. Yeah. You know, the jazz age. Yet in the book, I discovered that jazz was here like 1913 in some cases. Yeah. And, and definitely during the war. Yeah, it's interesting that it actually was the war years was the period in which jazz became something known only to a few to becoming the most popular 
music in America almost exactly the same years as World War One. Are we counting from like uh, 1914 to 1918? Yeah, to 1919. Yeah. Those are the years when a lot of the New Orleans musicians moved to Chicago. As part of the Great Migration then, I would think? or Yes, yes. They moved for different reasons than the typical migrant from the South. I mean, these were professional musicians, and they came because the opportunities were dwindling in New Orleans. They could make a lot more money in Chicago. Yeah, but New Orleans was, uh, was, had economic problems during World War I. Mm-hmm. And then I'm almost wondering, too, was there a decent recording industry here in Chicago as well as New York and not so much in New Orleans? Is that also some demand that might have brought them north? No, no, not not that much, actually. Uh, okay. Strangely, some of the best jazz recordings were made by Chicago musicians were made either in Wisconsin or in Indiana. Oh. I think it was Richmond, Richmond, Richmond Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. They would get on the train and they would go out to Richmond to make all these fabulous recordings. Another big recording company had a studio in Wisconsin. I think I mentioned it in the book, but it was not the recording opportunities that brought the musicians here. It was the nightclub life. Ah. And because of the great migration, the audience just get bigger and bigger. For Black people from the South, one of the reasons that they liked coming to Chicago was because there was such a thing as live entertainment a very vibrant cafe and cabaret scene on State Street. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you have to remember that there was no recorded music. They didn't have discotheques. When you went to a club, it was live music. <laughs> right. And just about any joint that wanted to get business had to have musicians. So the number of musicians in Chicago was very big. So, well, I was just thinking, if you're going out for an evening and you have a choice of going to a restaurant or a bar that has no music yeah. versus one that has music, yeah. you're going to probably go to the live music. Yeah, but a jazz musician in Chicago could make as much as $50 a week. I mean, that's a, a lot of money. Yeah, in those days. In New oh, Orleans, they make a fraction of that, maybe $10. I looked it up in your book. The two recording studio places were Grafton, Wisconsin. That was the Paramount. Okay. And Gannett. With Jeanette, that's the one. Jeanette, yeah, that was in Richmond, Indiana. Yeah. And thanks to you, I got kind of fascinated. I actually spent the weekend in Richmond, Indiana this summer, and wow. that recording studio is still there. It's it, kind of it, a ruin. As far as I know, it's still there. They were they were planning to make some kind of museum or something out of it. What happened, you know? Well, yeah, they do have sort of a venue, like a entertainment place where you could have a wedding or something, because it's mm-hmm. kind of a big edifice. But what I learned from going down that rabbit hole was Gannett, besides doing all those great albums with Louis Armstrong and whatnot, when they weren't doing jazz or, or country, they produced KKK albums. <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't and, know that. And you know why? Because it was a good revenue stream for them. And uh, I hate to say it, but Indiana was one of the hotbeds of the KKK. Oh, oh it sure was. <laughs> <laughs> so well, no, what's, there's a book right there for you, Joe. Surprise, that doesn't surprise me. I didn't know it, and it's fascinating. That would be a great research project, you know, if you want to look into a KKK albums. Wow. <laughs> I think they're KKK songs and all that, you know, Jeez. whatever anthems they have, or maybe they have speeches, but 
boy, that is just a, a juxtaposition. <laughs> Black jazz uh, musicians and the KKK. I, I just yeah, can't wrap my head around that. One, one day you have Jelly Roll Morton, and the next day you have the KKK. <laughs> and Joe, yeah, let's talk about the names. We're talking about Baby Dodds. We're talking about King Oliver, Louis Armstrong. As you said, Jolly Roll Morton. I mean, these are world famous musicians even to this day. Yes, right. And uh, they would play. Was it Lincoln Gardens? Was the big swinging place? It was Rockville? probably. There was another one called Dreamland. But for those musicians, they were more or less all on that section of the South Side called the Stroll, right? Which was State Street below, like Thirty Fifth Street. There's nothing left of it now. And the Peking. Uh, was it the Peking Peking Gardens? Was it? Gardens was very popular. Yeah. These were clubs that were not only dance clubs, but were, they put on shows. They actually, you know, had a stage and an MC and they would do different acts. It could be a dance act and a, a music, musical act, a comedian, whatever. And in a certain part, once the show was over, then the dancers would come onto the floor. Well, there are descriptions of how busy those dance floors were. They were really something to see. Well, you, you can imagine without much in the way of, let's see, I'm trying to think if, if radio was even a thing then. No, but not then. So you, you really, you, the home entertainment is unless, you know, unless somebody in the family play the piano or a guitar or some kind of musical instrument. No, they did have, they did have records. Mm-hmm. But those, I would imagine, would have been a bit expensive initially. Yeah, the machines were expensive. Right. Yeah, so I think your typical club goer probably couldn't afford uh, Victrola. So, so you really kind of had to find your own fun, and and the clubs would have been, yeah, you know, part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in those days, if you wanted to have music in your house, you had to make it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's why just about every house had a piano. But then the younger musicians, especially these white kids uh, on the West Side, they went out and they bought instruments and they formed little jazz groups. Right. I, I remember talking to friends, you know, because the big band era would then follow this, right? Yeah. And they had parents or, or uncles that were in some big bands that would tour around and perform. Mm-hmm. And so we aren't that far removed from this uh, live entertainment being really the only real entertainment. No, not really. No. Interesting. Joe, how did you get the idea to write this book? I was just thinking about, it was pretty much a continuation of my first book, which is about Chicago in the 1890s. And there are various reasons that Chicago became the city uh, that it did in the 20th century. And just reading other histories of Chicago, I realized the importance of the war years. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that it was, a, it was a neglected period in Chicago history. You know, in the 19, starting, I think, in the 1990s, Americans started to realize that um, the veterans of World War II were dying off and started paying more attention to World War II with shows like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan and a World War II memorial, mm-hmm. which was great. I mean, it was they really deserved it. 
But in the long run of history, it seemed to me that World War I was actually a more crucial event than World War II. That was the war that really changed everything. So, Joe, when you said it was neglected, did, did you mean that there wasn't a lot of history or coverage on it or respect for it? Is that kind of what you're getting at? No, I think it was just not, uh, it didn't have a high profile in people's consciousness mm-hmm. because of this, of the enthusiasm of World War II, which makes sense. I mean, especially in the context of American history, American commitment to World War II was 10 times what it was in World War I. Right. But if you look at it globally and historically, World War I was an immense game changer. I mean, if there's no World War I, the Tsar does not get overthrown in Russia, then there's no Soviet Union. There's no World War I. The Germans don't have this revenge mentality, which causes Hitler to become the chancellor. So there's no Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can go on and on. There would probably have been no communist China. There would have been no Holocaust. So World War I is sent into motion a huge uh, string of events which still resonate today. Which you mentioned too in your introduction about, you know, Korea, Vietnam, you know, the struggles in the Middle East might not have happened, right? Even the Middle East, right? Yeah. And look at Chicago, Joe. Chicago was really a German town until the Great War because then a lot of Germans for lack of a better metaphor, they kind of went underground a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, people might not realize how German Chicago was because there's not that much to see today that's left from that period, but it was was by far the largest ethnic group in Chicago. And I, I mentioned in the book that Anybody running for mayor had to be able to speak German, go to rallies, talk to these people. You know, they had parades and beer gardens and dances. And there was a lot of German newspapers and lots of German newspapers. Strong German culture here. Yeah. German was probably the most popular language to study in high school. Hmm. And of course, as we talked about in our Haymarket episode, there was a lot of German anarchists, too, at least in the 1880s. Yeah. The one image problem that the Germans had was that the anarchists tended to be German. But on the whole, they were considered just a minority. Germans were really an admired and welcome people in the city. Great artisans, too, and craftsmen. But, but there were polls taken about which ethnic group people admired the most, and the Germans were the first. Hmm. But, but Joe, think about the Germans, these poor Germans, they're living in Chicago, and suddenly there's liberty cabbage instead of sauerkraut, and there's political cartoons showing them being executed. Yeah. Your chapter on that was fascinating. Oh. Yeah, we we were just talking about how the Germans were such an admired ethnic group and and a large ethnic group. And the, I forget the exact numbers, but the number of Germans counted in the 1910 census in Chicago was much higher than the number of Germans counted in the 1920 census in Chicago, maybe by like 80,000 people. Germans didn't leave the city. They were still there. 
they just didn't admit or identify as being German anymore because it became such a problem to be a German. There's only one instance of I know of, of a German citizen being lynched, but it did happen in downstate Illinois. But Germans in Chicago did a lot of name changing. Schmidt became Smith and so on. Miller became Miller. So a lot of Germans changed their name and didn't identify as Germans anymore. Germans were liable to being arrested for various reasons because there was a lot of paranoia about spies. But there was also, you know, anti-sedition laws. You couldn't say something like, I hope Germany wins the war or I'm pro-German or even anything admiring about German. One of the stories I tell in the book is about this poor fellow named Wiesenthal who went to get a haircut. And while getting his haircut, he said, I think the Kaiser is the greatest man alive. Well, two people overheard him and reported him to the police. He was hauled before a judge, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who sentenced him to 10 years in prison. Just for saying that. Wow. And the judge said, I was going to sentence you to 20 years in prison, but your son is in the American army. So I'll only give you 10. Now, can you imagine wow. giving a 10 years in prison and his son is fighting in the American army? Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of other stories about the intense uh, anti-German feelings, like street name changes and school changes the bismarck hotel was changed i forget what and mm -hmm. hospitals and streets of the german names and chris mentioned liberty cabbage mm -hmm. that's one of the most <laughs> fun ones i mean sauerkraut became liberty cabbage and german shepherds became alsatians or police dogs anything with german measles became liberty measles <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah, Chicago was kind of uptight about that. And from your book, I read that there was a movie about the American Revolution, yeah. the independence, and I believe they arrested the director and put him in jail yeah. for making this anti-British movie. Yeah, this is a movie about the American Revolution. I think right. it was called The Spirit of 76. I mean, what's the problem of making a movie about the American Revolution, right? Well, it was interpreted as being anti-British. And the British were our allies in World War I, so we can't do anything anti-British. So they arrested the poor director of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you had to be careful in those days, you know? Well, it's interesting. I was just taking a look at the demographics. And in 1900, there was about half a million Chicagoans, one out of every four residents yeah. had either been born in Germany or had parents born there. Yes. And their numbers dropped because of reduced emigration from Germany during World War One. Yeah. And then it was, of course, unpopular to acknowledge German heritage, but yet still 22% of Chicago's population still considered themselves German in the 1920 census. So we had a very strong still German contingent. Even today, yeah, I don't remember these figures, but a very recent poll, not of Chicago, but of the Chicago land, 
a very significant number of people considered themselves to be of German heritage. Mm-hmm. It was more people than considered themselves to be Polish, which is a very high profile ethnic group. Right. Now, did anyone in Chicago who was German, a German national, did anyone go back to Europe to fight with the Kaiser? Yeah, I don't have any numbers on that. I don't know if anybody does, but there were some, hmm. especially first weeks of the war. A lot of young German men went to the German consulate to sign up to fight. I don't know how many of them actually did, but you know, there were a handful that went back to Germany. Other ethnics in Chicago who went to fight in Europe too. Some Italians went back, mm-hmm. Poles quite a few. I know my ancestors uh, in Ireland really had no interest in joining the British crown to fight anybody because they were fighting their own Easter rebellion in Dublin. Yeah, oh, okay. These were your forebears, huh? Well, they weren't crazy enough to be in any of that. But, I mean, my grandfather was born with the century, so he was 16 when the Easter Rising happened in 1916. But certainly the Irish didn't really love the queen or the king, whatever. They they weren't enthusiastic about fighting yeah. on behalf of the crown. There were a group of Irish who did fight for the crown. They did it in the hopes that doing so would foster the cause of Irish independence. Oh, okay. As the war went on, they started to think that it was not going to do much for the Irish independence. And that's when they launched the Easter Rebellion, which began, you know, even before the war was over. Yeah. And that's one reason the British kind of freaked out because, I mean, it was, it was a rebellion, albeit unsuccessful, but it was during wartime. That's why the the leaders of that were all executed. Yeah. Very harshly, I might add. And that, that backfired later. People in America were like, What's going on here? I mean, it was, had they kept the Irish leaders in jail for a couple of years and then freed them, there may not be an independent Ireland today. Well, you get the argument that was an unpatriotic right. act, yeah. right? And so within the war fervor, yeah. it's hard to, to not disabuse much more strongly than in peace times. Oh, of course. historians. <laughs> Joe, tell us about Clarence Darrow during the war. Oh, Darrow, like several other people in Chicago, well, actually Chicago was one of the centers of American pacifism. Jane Addams was one of the most vocal leaders of the anti-war sentiment. Clarence Darrow was too. He was a great friend of Jane Addams. But unlike Jane Addams, when the war came, Clarence Darrow became an enthusiastic supporter of the war which disappointed a lot of his friends. But one of the interesting things was that when there were anti-war dissenters or people who resisted the draft, Darrow was willing to defend them in court. So it's considered kind of a blot on his record, but after the war was over, he admitted that he was a little too pro-war. Jane Adams, on the other hand, was was a woman who really stuck to her principles and suffered a lot for it because she came in for a lot of criticism during the war. I mean, she went to Europe with a band of women and she had these peace organizations 
She tried to meet with political leaders. This was not going to work. The war fever was just too intense. But there were a lot of nasty remarks thrown at Jane Addams. And it was only till well after the war was over that people realized that she did stick to her principles. And in the long run, she was right. Because by this time, she was pretty well established in Chicago, right? As a Oh, she was some, one of the most famous women in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, I don't forget the date of uh, Hull House was late 1880s, right? 1889. The establishment of that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she had written a lot of books. She was very famous, which is one reason I think she got such nasty criticism because she was such a high-profile figure. So, Chris, I thought we should break in a little bit about Jane Addams and give a little more flavor for her background. What do you know about Jane Addams? Well, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is Jane Addams Hull House Museum at 800 South Halstead, which is, I believe it's on the campus of the University of Chicago Circles. That was really the first, the concept of social work really developed in, I would say, the modern era. Right. And it was interesting that That was at the corner of Polk and Halstead Streets. And the reason it got the name Hull House is that Jane Addams and her friend Ellen Starr had leased this house that was built by Charles Hull to begin in 1889, what is now known as Hull House. And that's the original structure, which is still there, the museum that one can visit. Right. And... There's a great quote in this biography of their purpose, and it was to provide a center for higher civic and social life, to institute and maintain educational and philanthropic enterprises, to investigate and improve the conditions in the industrial districts of Chicago. Yeah, and at that time, many people in Chicago did not speak English, the neighborhood was that was Italian back then. That little Italy is really on the corner there. Right. It was Italian back then in the 1880s. She put it down in an immigrant neighborhood. Maybe one of the things they thought of was, well, you know, we can make them American. You know, we teach them how to teach them English and teach them how to take care of the children. And I don't know if it was that Victorian, you know, virtuous imposing of values or if it was just a genuine, let's try to lift these people up. Right. The biography didn't really tell me that much, but what was interesting is that the two had traveled to Europe. They were both had come from somewhat well-do families. Actually, Jane Addams was born in Cedarville, Illinois in 1860, uh, and her father was a prosperous miller, and he was for 16 years a state senator and an officer in the Civil War and was a friend of Abraham Lincoln. Um, So kind of very grounded. And in 1881, Jane graduated from Rockford Female Seminary, which later became Rockford College for Women. And she and her friend toured Europe for two years and visited what they called then and what Hull House became is a settlement house in London when they're in the East End. And it was called Tonnenby Hall. And that was where they got the idea to do like this settlement house in the U.S., which I think was the first one ever in North America. And on their website, the Hull House website, they have a wonderful virtual tour with the click of a mouse. You can enter the house. You can go through the front 
door into the hallway. You can explore the rooms. And I'm looking at it now. It's a beautiful house. I mean, it's extraordinary. Well, and speaking of the front door, Chris, I also found out by year two of Whole House, more than 2,000 people a week passed through those doors. So it was a very successful endeavor, even right away. Wow. And they would do things besides, you know, the basics, you know, reading and writing and all that. They would put on plays. They would have little skits. And I, I believe that that was almost the seeds that planted, you know, like Second City in Chicago. Some people have made that reference. And, you know, they had clubs. They would have after-school programs. They would have a kindergarten. So it was very much to help uplift poor areas, industrial areas, and immigrants to Chicago. This was in an era when children were seen but not heard. So the fact that they wanted to treat kids with respect and dignity and kind of a foreign concept when you're thinking about child labor laws and that sort of thing that did not exist at that time. Nor did social services as they do today. So right. they were really at the behest of family, the church, or what other philanthropy might be around in, in the civic community. It was very progressive. I mean, she was obviously decades ahead of her time. She was. And she was also early, even before World War I started, was an advocate for peace and did a tour in Europe, as Joe will mention, to try to end the war and have peace. And then eventually, really sort of the culmination of her career, in uh, 1931, she received the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. That was awarded to her in Oslo. And then she died in 1935. That's pretty remarkable. And what I didn't find, but I know she authored articles. And so she was actually, as Joe says in the podcast, was very widely and well-known and was really a celebrity of her time, sort of like Mother Teresa is today, her work with the poor. And Patrick, what does Jane Addams have in common with three other local but nationally prominent men, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, and Adlai Stevenson? I was going to say born in Illinois, but I know Barack Obama, I think he was born in Hawaii. That's right. So I don't know. You, what is it, Chris? Well, they have the dubious distinction of all having their names attached to highways. Ah. The Jane Addams Tollway, Ronald Reagan Highway, the Adlai Stevenson Highway, and part of that is also the Barack Obama Highway. I don't know if that's an honor if your great-great-grandmother's Jane Addams and you turn on the radio and you hear, the Jane Addams is not moving today, and yeah, bumper to bumper people would be cursing. <laughs> so I, I think it's a dubious distinction. Especially given that you typically only hear those names in relation to traffic and difficulty getting around the city. Right. But the fact is that Jane Addams is up there also with John F. Kennedy, the Kennedy Expressway, so and the Eisenhower. So that's pretty damn impressive for someone who was not president of the United States or vice president like Adlai Stevenson. To be with the big boys is very impressive. Maybe it's parallel uh, Chicago's Mount Rushmore. You just are named after an expressway. Yes. Yes. That's very American, actually. <laughs> well, good. Well, anyway, we wanted to give you a little better sense of who Jane Adams was. And let's get back to our interview with 
Ciao. Another high-profile figure that emerges from the war that we all know about is Colonel McCormick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, when, when I was a kid, I must have been 10 years old. We went to Contigny in Wheaton, his estate. And yeah, I, no, remember, I, I, I went there as part of the research for this book. I had to go see it. You know? Yeah, it's really cool. It is. I remember they had trenches and tanks and kind of a recreation of what the war was like. Talk about uh, Colonel McCormick's experience in Europe. Oh, <laughs> I can't tell you too much about it, but because Colonel McCormick had connections, he was able to get a commission. And actually, when he was in Europe during the war, he performed well in combat. And it was at the Battle of Cantigny, which is the name he gave to his estate. He was, uh, he was kind of like Teddy Roosevelt. The interesting was... thing about McCormick is that most of the high-profile Americans who served in World War I were willing to forget it after they came back. But he always had to be called Colonel. He was one of the people who said, no, I'm not Mr. McCormick, I'm Colonel McCormick. There were 10,000 other colonels out there who didn't care if he's Colonel. And from your book, I read that General Pershing, of course, Pershing Road is named for him. He was impressed with Colonel McCormick and said, if you go back to the States and train recruits from me, I'll make you uh, whatever it is, a lieutenant, colonel, yeah. <laughs> uh, brigadier general, whatever it is. As you said in the book, very wryly, you said, well, unfortunately for Colonel McCormick, the war ended. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, he would have got his promotion. Believe it or not, there were some people who were disappointed when the war ended. Yeah, sure. Some of them were uh, meatpackers and you know, <laughs> steel makers and things like that because they did such a good business during the war. Defense contracts are, are profitable, for sure. And I guess I should have mentioned uh, Colonel McCormick, Robert McCormick, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. Exactly. Now, is is he related to the McCormick and International Harvester family? Is that also it? Yes. 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 One branch of the family are, is the Harvester family, and the other is the Medill. Okay. The yes. Medill family. It's a complicated family tree, but they're all connected. Mm -hmm. And is McCormick Spice also part of that family? Not that I know of. Okay. Just a different. Yeah. Got it. I always wondered that. But Patrick, you should go check out Contigny. It's really unbelievable. It's, it's his estate in Wheaton. It's it's very impressive. Yeah. You can picnic out there and not in the winter, obviously, but yeah, I'll have to You can. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, tell us about lightless Mondays and Tuesdays. Oh yeah. Well, they were strong incentives and propagandas too to conserve and preserve all kind of products that were needed for the war effort. This is, we know this also happened in World War II when people had scrap metal drives and whatever. So in Chicago, they had a very complicated system of, of wheatless Monday, meatless Tuesday, coalless Wednesday. The three things that they needed to save most were meat, 
grain products like wheat and coal, which was essential for keeping the factories running. So people tried to, you know, get through the winter with as little coal as possible. And yet there were posters saying, you know, this save wheat, save this, save that. So yeah, coalless, wheatless. And there were orders to turn out the lights downtown, you know, on State Street and Randolph Street. The theaters would be dark just to save electricity, which would save coal. And you know, agents would go around to make sure the lights were off in all the saloons. A lot of people didn't pay much attention. So the enforcement was uneven, let's say. And I, I noticed that the movie theaters advertised, come to the movies and wear coats on Colas Wednesday. And yeah. probably a good way to snuggle up with your girlfriend. Well, that's a, yeah, I didn't think of that. <laughs> you didn't have to make that that awkward move of putting your arm around her. You were just helping her out, right? Yeah. Right. It's cold in here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let me turn up your your collar and help you out there, right? That's another interesting thing about Chicago, the number of movie theaters, which is like 10 times what it is today. Again, similar to the live music, right? It was. Yeah, 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 and you had to go out. There's no television. There's not even radio in those years. Entertainment was outside the house, most, mostly. But, you know, it, I mean, think about it. When right. You're, you're sitting at home, and, and you have dinner, and then you say, what are we going to do now? Yeah. You can't turn on the television. You can't turn on the radio. You go out. Mm -hmm. Chances are you live in Chicago. There's a movie theater within two blocks of your house. Mm -hmm. There's a club with live music not very much farther away. So that's what you do. You go out. It was affordable. Or, or you might go to the local tavern. and Yeah. At least the, the men might take off. and do Yeah. That. Oh, they sure did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of, it was kind of a nice thing, you know, that you, you you went out. Yeah. Now people stare at their phones, Joe. They do. Is that an improvement? I don't think so. Not really. I don't think so. I, I also think about, like, you mentioned World War II and the, the ration books, and obviously World War I with the coal and the wheat. During this pandemic, we're having these supply chain issues, and Americans are grumbling because it's taking them a, a while to get their sofa delivered. I don't know if we have the backbone of that generation to put up with pain and being uncomfortable. No, I don't think so. Well, life has progressively gotten easier and better. So it's a, it's a, it's relative, right? You get, you get used to comfort and curbs on the sidewalks and yeah, it's what you're, you're used to and insulated houses and air conditioning. Oh yeah. I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> but, can you imagine if, if we had a conflict and the government said, here's your ration book for fuel, Mr. SUV owner? I think there'd be like a revolution in this country. I really do. People would be very angry. Oh, yeah. Well, there'd be a black market right away, right? Yeah, it always is. This has been going on for decades. Americans, yeah, believe that it's you know, an American right to have a cheap gasoline. Gasoline prices go up, people go nuts. Mm -hmm. But you go over to Europe and... Yeah, 
they're paying four and five times as much for gasoline. Yeah, exactly. Now it's a smaller continent, so they don't consume maybe nearly what we do to get move things around, but still. No, still, it's, it's quite a difference, yeah. Yeah. Joe, and that's the perfect transition. Uh, you talked about how World War I was a catalyst. The treaties that ended the war drew up the boundaries of the Middle East, Iraq and Iran and Saudi Kingdom and whatnot, and all the problems we've had in the Middle East due to oil are all because of these boundaries that didn't recognize ethnic groups and languages and whatnot. It was something called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. I don't know much about this, but these were two diplomats, Sykes from Britain and Picot from France. Those were the two countries most heavily invested in the Middle East that had their colonies there. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, these enormous territories, and we had to decide what to do with them. And these these two diplomats just took a map and said, okay, this is going to be Syria over here. This is going to be Iraq over here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't matter if there's a Shiites and Sunnis in the same country. They just said, okay, this is where the border is going to be. So these are artificial countries. There's no, you know, cultural tradition that unites the peoples of those countries. And we've been living with consequences of this for a century. Yeah, wow. Yeah. The war's aftermath continues to reverberate. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I say I called it was not my line, but it's been called the war that changed everything. Well, just anecdotally, when I was in high school, I was at a football game and the announcer at halftime said, Oh, by the way, uh, Mr. Smith is here, Joe Smith, and he's been to every Hinsdale Central football game for the last 50 years or something. And he stood up and waved and they said, except for when he fought in France in World War I. Wow. And at the time I was, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old. It didn't dawn on me that this guy might've been in Flanders field or whatnot. I mean, I just, I never, I guess I wasn't mature enough to make the connection, but if I had been smart, I would have walked over and introduced myself and shook his hand and, Talk to them because those guys are all gone now. Yep. Well, it's interesting that you remember that actually, Chris, too. Yeah, I just thought it was cool. The, and that was the excuse for missing the football games because of the of fighting in France. <laughs> I, I had a teacher in high school who had one arm mm. and he lost it in World War One. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I just wanted to frame this a little bit for the listeners that aren't familiar with the history is that the World War I started in 1914. America entered on April 6th, 1917. And then a little over a year later, November 11th, 1918, was the armistice and the end of the war. Yeah. So basically 1914 to 1918. Yeah. But Americans who were in, in actually in combat for barely a year. Right. Yeah. What was the military like in the U.S. at that time, Joe? Was it very large or... When World War I began, the military was tiny. Hmm. I had the figures in there. It's uh, less than, I think, less than 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they had to raise an army really fast, a lot of soldiers. Eventually, they got 4 million. Was there a draft or was it, what were the incentives to bring? Yeah, no, there, yeah, there was a draft. Okay. And it was a big draft. 
I mean, I think about three quarters of the soldiers in World War One were, were drafted. Yeah. It was controversial. It was unpopular and more so in certain regions of the United mm-hmm. States, the West and, and the South, especially hated the idea of the draft. One way they were able to institute it without too much controversy was that they established local draft boards. Yeah. And these local draft boards were not run by the army. They were run by people in the community, Mm -hmm. civilians, people that everyone knew, you know, could be the druggist on the corner or your high school principal. And that gave people the impression that this was not a mandate coming from some anonymous bureaucrats in Washington. Mm-hmm. It was being done by your neighbors and friends. Do you recall like the makeup or composition of that exemption board here in Chicago? Oh, well, it was like anywhere in America. In fact, when the composition was announced in early 1917, the newspapers were pleased that these were not politicians. These were ordinary citizens. They were, you know, tend to be more prominent people, mm-hmm. but they were satisfied these were fair. Mm-hmm. Impartial. Judges. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Impartial, that's the word. Yeah. So that was not a problem. Interesting. That helped dissipate a lot of the anti-draft sentiment. So despite a lot of predictions that there would be violent resistance to the draft, went off remarkably smoothly. How did it go in Chicago then? Fine. There was not a big draft resistance movement in Chicago. I should say that these draft boards were originally called exemption boards, Hmm. which means that one of their important tasks was to exempt people Mm -hmm. who shouldn't be drafted. A lot of these were workers in plants that were essential to the war effort. So your steel workers and et cetera could ask for exemptions. Yeah. And the Chicago draft boards granted a lot of exemptions. I, I don't remember the percentage, but most of the people who asked for exemptions were given them. Well, there was a lot of heavy industry here too. So that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And the military was very reluctant to draft married men especially if they had children. Mm-hmm. So they were normally exempt too. So the propaganda was pretty effective and there was a lot of enthusiasm for the war efforts. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of volunteers, especially in the early days of the war. You know, you talked about Colonel McCormick being made by the war. It just dawned on me when it came to literature, Ernest Hemingway Oh. Kind of blossomed because of the war. Oh, yeah. Park. He came back a hero. And he was only like 18 when he volunteered. He was not in the American army. I think it was because of his eyesight. So he volunteered to become an ambulance driver in Italy. And he saw some really ugly stuff. And he did get blown up. Spent a lot of time in the hospital. When he came back to Oak Park in his uniform, oh, he was, hmm. oh the girls were all over him. <laughs> and he married his nurse, I believe. Uh, she was the subject of his book of Farewell to Arms, their romance. But I'm not, did they get married? I don't, I don't remember. Her name was Agnes. Oh, 
something or other. Agnes, right. I think he pined for her, but she she was much older, I believe. But I mean, think about that. I mean, this catalyst of the war and this man of great intellectual fervor and energy. I mean, he changed the way the 20th century authors wrote books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just sorry, I was just checking. He did not marry her. His first spouse was Hadley Richardson. Okay. Okay. But she was obviously a love interest of his. Yeah. And amused, apparently. Yeah. Oh, well, the farewell to arms is a terrific book. I think it mentions the Chicago stockyards too. He makes a reference to the dead of the war and animals being oh. slaughtered in the stockyards. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, these are kind of games you could play. Let's say there was no World War One. Would Hemingway have become this great author? Who knows? Oh, I think I, I don't think it would have made any difference. He would have become a, a great author. Okay. What about that Jewish gangster who became a hero? <laughs> oh, Nails Morton. Yes, tell us that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember, but somehow I got in touch with his great niece or something like that. She supplied me with his picture. He was a, you know, a tough Jewish kid, grew up on the West Side. And in those days, there were gangs you know, based on ethnicity. And he was one of the heroes who would engage in gang wars with the Catholics, mostly Polish, and he went into the army and turned out to be a hell of a soldier. Yeah, he was the gangster as war hero and was written up in the newspaper as a hero. And then when he came back after the war, he got into Dean O'Banion's gang in the early 1920s. Apparently, this is true. He's the one who created the famous phrase, let's take him for a ride. <laughs> I think every gangster movie has that line. Uh, oh, yes. Nails Morton eventually was killed by falling from a horse. There was a stable in Lincoln Park where you could go horseback riding. Now, the, the legend is, and I don't know if it's true, that one of his buddies whacked a horse <laughs> for killing Nails. Whether or not this is true, it became a, a scene in a movie with Jimmy Cagney where he whacked a horse that killed one of his friends. So the legend lives on. You could say the horse took him for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> and this horse theme uh, in Gangsters seems to continue. I mean, think of the Godfather when this poor singer wakes up next to the horse. Oh, yeah. But I guess, you know, the war was a great equalizer because you, you would have a Jewish kid from the West Side or someone like Colonel McCormick, obviously a different social strata, and they're all fighting on the same side, yeah. kind of the great leveler. Yeah. One of the interesting things, and people pointed it out at the time, was the enormous ethnic variety of the American army. In the book, I have a list of some of the names of the soldiers in the Chicago regiment, and they are all over the place. I mean, they're Greek, in Lithuanian, and Polish, and Italian, Irish. There were many soldiers in the American army who couldn't speak English. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could use the metaphor of a melting pot to describe you know, the experience of these soldiers. 
in World War One. They had to learn to get along. You know, the other thing, Joe, going back to your thesis about the war changing everything, tell us about the song that was sung at Wrigley Field during a baseball game that started a tradition. Yeah. Actually, I think it was at Comiskey Park. Cubs were in the World Series, but I think they played the game at Comiskey Park because it was larger. Anyhow, it was the World Series. They were playing Boston. And at one point during the game, the band, was live music being everywhere, there was a band at the ballpark played the Star Spangled Banner. And everybody stood up and sang. It, it was not officially the national anthem yet, but it was a, a very popular patriotic song. Reporters in the newspaper wrote about it, and the owners of the ball club said, this is, this was great, I love this, let's do it again. So when the series moved back to Boston, they said, well, we're going to do it too. So one thing led to another. They started singing the Star Spangled Banner before every game in the World Series. Well, obviously now you have to sing it before any game of any kind. But it did start in Chicago during World War One. And you're right, Joe, that was at Kaminsky Park Yeah. in Chicago. And interestingly enough, Babe Ruth was playing for the Boston Red Sox in that 1918 World Series. That's right. <laughs> One of the I members mean, of, of the Cubs was actually in the military at the time, if I remember. That is so remarkable to think about something we don't even are consciously almost aware of. I mean, you know, that's sung at every game. Yeah, you and, take it for granted. You, you just yeah. say, okay, we're going to have a, a game. We're going to sing it. Nobody sings. Why do we do this? Where, where did this start? Do they do this in, in, in other countries? I don't know. And then think about this. A, a hundred years since it started, then you had people like Colin Kaepernick yeah, kneeling right. during during the national anthem, and that caused all sorts of issues that has I know. I know. been reverberating through sports to this day. I don't know if you remember this, but in Wrigley Field in the 50s, they didn't sing the national anthem Oh, before the game. They okay. sang it at the first game of the year, and that was it. Hmm. Oh. Do you remember why, Joe, or what? Now, now it's mandatory. You know, uh, I could argue that they don't need it. If it's going to create problems, it's going to create arguments. We shouldn't need to play it at all. Well, and it goes back to World War One and the patriotism at that time, right? Yeah. It started it. Yeah. Interesting. We talked about this in our podcast on the Columbian Exposition, the Pledge of Allegiance emerged out of Columbus Day, and it was used as a way to sell flags. It was purely for marketing reasons. <laughs> but once these things start, yeah, you better be careful trying to stop it. It's, it's really hard to stop them to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I was fascinated, Joe, about the war exposition, speaking of spectacles that took place in Grant Park 
you have a great picture in the book of it. It's a kind of a two-page foldout of just this immense crowd, maybe kind of where Soldier Field is. Oh, yeah. and Soldier Field, wasn't that named for the World War I veterans? Definitely, yeah. And that's singular, Soldier Field, not plural. Soldier Field, yeah. But I'm, being a Chicagoan, though, you got to say Soldier's Field, though. Like that, it's like it's like uh, the jewel. Yeah, yeah, the jewels. <laughs> Gotta go down to jewels, pick up uh, treat four beers. That's right. Yeah, yep. we're down to those guys. That's right. But this one photo in your book, I'm trying to find it here. I mean, there must have been two, three hundred thousand people watching this war simulation of soldiers and no. airplanes and tanks. It's very impressive. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that, what that must have been like? I mean, talk about a forgotten event in Chicago history. Nobody oh, right, right. remembers that. They dug trenches, they had tanks, and they had airplanes. You were supposed to get the idea that you were watching the war because they had guys charging the trenches. And put this on, like, for weeks. Yeah. Oh, and it went to other cities, too, but by far biggest attendance was in Chicago. Was this done before or after the war or during the war? What? It was during the war. During the war. During the war. After the Americans had got into the war. So was it sort of a recruiting tool? Uh, no, it was more of a... Kind of a patriotic thing, would you say? Yeah. A wave of, of inspiring patriotism and giving people a taste of what was going on. Well, I guess if you didn't have really newsreels about the war and to envision it, be a curiosity in a way. Yeah, yeah. It was a way, of, you know, war bonds were a very big component of, of the war effort and mm -hmm. they were selling bonds all the time. And this was a way of raising money. Okay, that makes sense. Joe, you just want to maybe mention the black regiments that was yeah. out of Bronzeville that fought in France? Yeah, we should mention that. Yeah, so for sure. The, the important contingent of black soldiers. The 370th Infantry, right? Yeah, the 370th was the old 8th Illinois. And when the war began, there was well at least one National Guard unit that was composed strictly of black soldiers. Of course, the Army obviously was segregated. This National Guard unit was called the 8th Illinois. They had been around since the 1890s. They had participated in the Spanish-American War. But anyhow, during World War I, this unit became the 370th Infantry Regiment. Many Black soldiers were drafted. Some volunteered. In general, these troops were not trusted, uh, not considered soldier material and they were put to work in things like labor battalions or unloading cargo ships. The 370th Illinois, however, did go to combat. They actually served under French command. They had a very distinguished record. The Germans called them black devils. Mm. which was a name they accepted with pride. Huh. And the regimental band was called the Black Devils Band. And the huh. Black Devils Band played concerts during and after the war, uh, made tours. 
about half of the, I don't remember the exact numbers, but about half of the Black Chicago soldiers who went over to France didn't come back. So they were had a very distinguished record. And fortunately, when they did come back to Chicago, they were given a big parade down Michigan Avenue and everybody came out to cheer them. And now there's an impressive monument uh, on the South Side, which I recommend uh, visiting. It's quite a story. And as we mentioned in our next episode about the 1919 uh, race riot, when that event occurred in July of 1919, when white mobs were shooting at black houses and people, there were military men in those houses who shot back because these were soldiers who had fought in France and they knew how to use a rifle. I didn't know that. And they defended themselves. And that was the first time in Chicago that a mob, a white mob met resistance like that. Wow. So we learned that from talking with Charles Branham, the professor emeritus at uh, DuSable Museum. And that was a fascinating component. And we're going to have a whole podcast episode about that with that interview. That'll be fascinating. I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. That's another upcoming episode. Joe, we were talking about the Cubs. Tell us about Frederick McLaughlin, (laughs) uh, how he named a team after his regiment. Isn't, yeah, I thought that was, and there's there's something that was a surprise to me. I'm sure that um, just about all Blackhawk fans assumed that the team was named after Blackhawk. Native American chief. The uh, Native American chief. It is, sort of, but most of the Chicagoans who fought in World War I were members of the 86th Division of the U.S. Army, who trained at Camp Grant. And while they were training, they were visited by a character named Old Doc Woodcock, who considered himself an expert on, on Native Americans and who knew some veterans of the Black Hawk War of 1832. And he taught them what he considered the Black Hawk War Cry. And they just loved it. They were so enthusiastic. They wanted to take this battle cry over to Europe and scare the hell out of the Germans. One of the leaders of the Black Hawk Regiment was Colonel McLaughlin, who, after he came back from the war, decided his professional hockey team went out and bought a hockey team called the Portland Rosebuds. He decided Rosebuds was not going to work for the name of a team from Chicago. So he renamed them the Blackhawks after his division, not directly after the famous chief. I can't imagine a hockey team named the Rosebuds. I mean, does that put the fear of God into you for playing them? Maybe in Portland they like it. It uh, it doesn't bring up the rough and tumble, you know, fighting and uh, you know, missing teeth and you know, the the bears. The bears. That's that's a teeth. That's a name. Yeah. Right. Right.
Joe, what kind of job opportunities did the war present to like Mexican immigrants? Yeah. Well, you have to realize that 4 million men went into the army in World War I. That's a lot of people. And a lot of them were young men who worked in factories and, and farms. So the labor shortage was intense. Normally, a labor shortage would have been handled by immigration, which is where these workers came from in the first place, at the steel mills and the packing houses. These were largely jobs for immigrants who didn't have to have any special skills or even know how to speak English. So not only did a lot of young American men go into the military, four million of them, but there were no more immigrants coming from Europe. And add to that, the huge demand for Chicago products needed in the war effort. Steel was needed for weapons mm -hmm. and meat was needed to feed the soldiers. These are products from the Chicago packing houses and wheat also needed for food and wheat was sold through Chicago at the Board of Trade. These are all Chicago-based products that were in great demand. Here we have workers leaving to go into the army, no immigrants to replace them. So where do they get the workers to take over? They get them in two places. The great migration of African-Americans from the South, where Chicago industries actively recruited young black men to come up and get jobs. They were very receptive because they could make a lot more money in the South and they were not treated so terribly. The second source was laborers from Mexico. In 1917, Congress passed the New Immigration Act. I mean, immigration was already low, but then they passed an immigration act requiring a literacy test for immigrants which they never had done before. And obviously there were a lot of immigrants who couldn't pass that test. They also raised the fee for entrance. There was a clause in that law, 1917 immigration law that said that the secretary of labor could set aside certain groups if there was a labor shortage. He was advised that was a great source of labor right next door. Uh -huh in Mexico. So he did set aside, he exempted the Mexicans from this immigration act. I won't go into the stresses and strains that were being experienced in Mexico, which had just gone through a horrible revolution, which uh, something like 10% of the population fled the country because of the anarchy in Mexico. So Mexicans now found another source of employment and they came to Chicago too and worked on, especially on railroads and in the steel industry. So these two population shifts from the American South and from Mexico changed the ethnic composition of Chicago in an enormous way, uh -huh. which still characterizes the city now. And with Chicago being a hub for railroads, it, it was pretty easy for within a few days Yes. To travel that distance. The Illinois Central Railroad, if you look at a map of the Illinois Central from like 19, 
2015, mm -hmm. it went down the Mississippi Valley into the, the southern states, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee. And in those days, yeah, railroad stations were everywhere. I mean, you almost didn't live less than 10 miles from a railroad station. Mm -hmm. And it was affordable. It made it very easy for people from the South to get on a train and come to Chicago. With the Mexican immigration, from your book, I learned there were Tamale Wars. <laughs> yeah, the Tamale Wars actually began before that. I don't know. I don't know what that happened, but this, Chicagoans discovered the Tamale in the 1890s. Actually, Joe, we talked about this when we first interviewed you for the podcast we did called 1893. We talked about the Tamale Wars. And your book, and we talked a little bit about the Tamale Wars there, because that was that Colombian Exposition brought the Tamales to Chicago, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But somehow they became popular, and the meat packers figured out a way to package tamales. So you could buy canned tamales at the you know really early in the 20th century. Oh, interesting. I never thought about canned tamales. Oh, you can still you can buy them. Frozen. I've seen them frozen, but can makes perfect sense in a world before refrigeration. Oh no, they they still make canned tamales. And then the tom toms, which you find in Chicago, they're all manufactured here in Chicago as well, and they're oh, delicious. There you go. And my father said that you know you could go to any hot dog stand in the '40s or '50s, and the tamale was always on the menu, which surprised me because we're not Southern California. Then when I learned about the deep roots of the Mexican people in Chicago, it makes perfect sense. Did anything surprise you, Joe, in your book? Did you come to any conclusions that perhaps going into the project you might not have discovered? Yeah, uh, the, the one big surprise I got, which I didn't know anything about, was that I doubt very much that the prohibition laws would have passed without World War One. Why is that? There was a strong prohibition sentiment in the United States, which was growing and growing in the late 19th century. But several things happened during World War One that made it more likely that this law would pass. One was because of the demonization of Germans, Beer, believe it or not, became almost portrayed as anti-American or un-American. All the great German brewers, Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz, Anheuser, Busch, were not only German, they were born in Germany. When they held meetings of the Brewers Association, they spoke German. So they were painted as supporters of Germany and anti-American. The second was we were talking about wheatless, coalless days. The pro-prohibition forces said, look, why are we turning all this grain into beer? It's a waste. We should be feeding it to the troops. So there actually was a ban on brewing during World War I. Finally, there was a greater centralization of power in Washington, the reach of federal power became much greater during World War One, And so laws that were passed or initiatives that came out of Washington were much more important. 
all those three things, as far as I could tell, really shifted a lot of people's sentiment against alcohol. And the Prohibition Amendment was passed right after the end of the war. Yeah, 1919, I believe. Yeah. So I'm pretty much persuaded that it wouldn't have happened without the war. And talk about, you know, an effect on Chicago. And the <laughs> prohibition years <laughs> were certainly colorful. Yeah, I don't think Brooklyn-born Al Capone would have come here if there wasn't prohibition. Yeah, sure. That was surprising. I didn't expect that. It never occurred to me. That might have been the tipping point. Yeah. Wasn't the Women's Temperance Union based in Evanston, Illinois? Oh, yeah. Frances Willard. Yeah. <laughs> who was the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union lived in Evanston. Well, and this takes us back to an earlier episode with Liz Garvey about a brewing city. And oh. that effort was going on for decades. And That's right. But it sounds like that maybe World War I was probably the final impetus to actually push it over the top to... Let that happen. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's human nature to hold two ideas in your mind that are in opposition. And, Absolutely. And Americans are good at that. For <laughs> example, during the war, Beethoven was always performed at the Chicago Symphony. Somehow they exempted him. He wasn't German anymore. Yeah. Well... The name von Beethoven is not German. It's Flemish. Oh, okay. And they made a point of that. <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, let's face it, it's pretty hard to run a symphony series without Beethoven. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. I don't know what they did with Wagner. That would be a harder sell. Well, Wagner was banned in a lot of places. Okay. I don't think they did Wagner at the Chicago Opera. I know they didn't do it in New York. They didn't do Wagner in New York. But, yeah, I mean, Beethoven's uh, theme was World War II, was the the uh, victory theme, the da-da-da-da. You know? mm-hmm. B for victory with Beethoven. So, yeah, somehow he kind of rises above politics. So so did Goethe. Goethe too. Yeah, weren't they talking about changing the street name and or that the was statue? one street name that didn't go over. Right. Yeah. And I think there was a statue of Goethe in Grant Park, and somehow he didn't get toppled. Yeah. The statue of Schiller, as I mentioned in the book, didn't get toppled, but somebody poured a bucket of paint, white, yellow paint. Yeah, so I don't know. It's fascinating. Well, for example, to speak of another war, the Japanese were sent into internment camps on the West Coast, right? Which was terrible. Meanwhile, in Hawaii, there was hundreds of thousands of Japanese in Honolulu, and they didn't touch any of those people. Hmm. Again, this was like U.S. policy. Ship the Japanese to the high Sierras and leave the Japanese alone in Honolulu. So there you go. Same kind of contradictory thinking. Yeah. I mean, this has been an interesting conversation. It really 
speaks to your title, Chicago Transformed by World War II. Yeah, the main points of the book were mm-hmm. the demographic changes, that there were three big increase in the Mexican and African-American population and the decrease in the German population, which changed the complexion of Chicago. It's such a different city in the 20th century than it was in the, mm-hmm. in the 19th because of the, those three changes. And then for the other, you know, kind of historians and writers out there, are there some particular research sources that you prefer or find really helpful? You know, I like to use newspapers a lot. Mm-hmm. And now they're all digitized. So it's so much easier than it used to be when you actually had to go get microfilm and, and read. Ugh. So, yeah, I would say I, I like newspapers. The internet has made research so much easier. Yeah. Problem, you can't believe half of what's on the internet. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to know your sources. But, for example, if there's a book in the Harold Washington Library, I don't have to go there to get it. Mm-hmm. I can go online and say, would you bring it to my local branch? And then in a week, it's there. Yeah. So, but even books, you know, books that were published in 1910, a lot of them are are digitized now. Yeah. Athy Terrest or some other sources, Google Books, there's a lot of, lot that you can get online. Yeah, Project Gutenberg. Yeah. If I recall, though, you, you mentioned a little bit about the sexual revolution that was happening during Chicago Transformed as well. Yeah, that's another important point because everybody thinks that sexual revolution happened in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But that was the second sexual revolution. The first one happened around the time of World War One, And it had to do with women coming to take jobs in the big city, girls from small Midwestern towns, and then the whole culture of fashion and you know, the jazz music and the hot dancing and all that sort of thing and dating patterns. It's a whole list of cultural changes. Even the bicycle, right? Even the bicycle. Bicycle is very important to the women's liberation. And that was in the earliest, the 1890s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, people did talk about the sexual revolution. They said it was sex o'clock. Sex o'clock in America. which i saw that in your table of contents and it immediately reminded me of a friend from new zealand i I went with kiwi dave at one time and we were talking with some australians and of course the australians sort of think of the the kiwis or the, the new zealanders as sort of the you know backwater or country bumpkins compared to australia uh-huh. And their joke is that, oh, yeah, New Zealanders have sure. sex twice a day. Because the way they pronounce the word six <laughs> sounds like sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they say pin for pen. I noticed that, yeah. too. Yes. Yeah, so that's an important part of the book about the sexual revolution and a lot of women's liberation. The word feminist, for example, started to become used in the World War I years, not the 1960s. Interesting distinction. Women's 
Joe, I don't think we ever asked you this. If you could go back in a time machine in Chicago, where would you go? I don't know. Where would you go? I, I would either go to the 1890s or the 1920s. It's a tough call. I would say you're allowed to go to more than once. Ooh. <laughs> I guess I'd start with the 1920s. I'd like to go hear, uh, you know, King Oliver and Louis Armstrong lay in a Southside joint. And that's tied in with your new book, The Jazz Age, that's Chicago right. during the Jazz Age. Yeah. So tell us about that book. Oh, I don't have time. Well, what what number book is this? First of all, Joe, you've written four. Is it four or is this five? This four. Okay. It's kind of an expansion of this book, right? It take- is. And you'll see that there is material that's repeated mm-hmm. because I talk about the origins of jazz in, in the World War I book. And I have to do it again in the Jazz Age Chicago book. But the title pretty much tells you what it's about. It's about Chicago in the 1920s. And that was coined by Scott, Scott Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, the term Jazz Age. So, Patrick, it's always a pleasure talking to Joe Gostitis about history and particularly about the period of World War One, the Great War. Which, as he alludes in the podcast, Chris, leads to his second book, right? Yes, The Jazz Age, which has recently come out and is a continuation of this period, because as Joe said, jazz didn't start in the 1920s. It started actually like 1913. And Chicago, and he certainly talks about it in Chicago Transform. And he just picks up the story in the new book and he he continues to discuss it as it evolves in the 1920s. When we recorded, I happened to be visiting New Orleans for a couple of weeks. Yes. And Joe got very excited when he heard that. (laughs) And we didn't even talk about the fact that you had just been there with your family in December. Right. For a long, a long weekend, if I recall. We had a great time. And when he discovered that you were in New Orleans, he had to he had to tell you where to go. Yeah, he had yeah. some great recommendations on what to do and where to go in New Orleans, uh, particularly as it pertained to music. So I thought it'd be fun to, as a conclusion to this episode to listen to Joe give some great advice on where to catch some jazz in New Orleans. The Big Easy. Well, I wish I was Patrick. He's in New Orleans, jerk. You're in New Orleans? I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I was there too. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite places. It's, uh, I hadn't spent any real time here except for one business trip maybe 15 years ago for a couple of days. So it's been kind of fun to explore. It's a little weird with the pandemic going on, but you know, the, the food's definitely good and different. And that, so is the architecture. Yeah, oh, yeah. You hear any jazz yet? Actually, just a little bit. I was at uh, Jackson Square, and there was a, a little combo that was playing today. Yeah. I sat down and listened to them for a bit. Got to go to Frenchman Street. You know about that? I Yeah, somebody mentioned that as well, that that's one of the places to go. That's the real thing there. Okay. Yeah, don't waste your time on Bourbon Street. <laughs> I had no intention of really going yeah. to Bourbon Street. but Yeah, that's where college kids hang out. But Frenchman Street... There's a lot of younger musicians who really take style of jazz seriously, and they they have some great bands there. Oh, good. Okay. Good.
Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hoggenson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. <laughs>